Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're back with another webinar um, with our amazing four guests that I hope you can all see in your screen. Uh, I'll, I'll go through a slow introduction so that we can uh, give some time for other attendees to join us. The first thing is just to say that this is, uh, we had intended to do this just as a first webinar that we did on the 5th of May, but uh, we had so many attendees and so many interesting questions that we decided to uh, offer our attendees or our guests whether they'd like to do this again, and here they are again. So that's a, a good sign. We also have plenty of people signed up today again, so uh, we hope to do this potentially more times. We, all have, we have also listened to your feedback. Uh, there was complaint of how long we took to introduce all our, our, our guests. So I'm going to make this very quick this time round. Uh, so I'm your host, uh, William McCant. I'm a co-founder from uh, Plumis. And we have uh, guests. Our guests today are Ian Moore, CEO of the Fire Industry Association. We have Tom Gilbert, who's the head of fire safety at Lendlease. We have Tony Hanley, who's the MD at FirePro and a director at the FIA as well. And we have Jan Cherntuk, who's the housing consultant and an advisor to us at Plumis. Welcome, gents. Um, so just in terms of some basic housekeeping, uh, the whole idea is that uh, you can, we'll have, uh, we'll have this webinar based on the questions that we received on the webinar that we did last time on the 5th of May. So we might not be able to answer specific questions or this will be becomes really a Q&A. The whole idea is that we'll be we'll base your your we'll base our discussion on your questions because it gives us clear direction on what people are interested in learning about. Uh, so I hope you can pick your your questions and if we can we'll make uh, reference to some of them. But there's some very specific and I'll give the example of Christopher Blake's one just too specific for us to go into too much detail here. We'll find experts that can answer your question and make it somewhere public so that we can start a discussion. You only give us a small ideas of other forums and, and ways of discussing this. Yeah. So, uh, and just finally, we're considering making this into a podcast. So you might be listening to this in uh, May 2030, uh, but this has been recorded on May 2020. We're in the middle of a COVID lockdown. Uh, so we're all very used to be in our homes or wherever we are doing this so we'll find out how this looks like to both in terms of the fire industry and in terms of working from home on screens in 10 years time when somebody gets to listen to this podcast uh so <laughs> download it from wherever you get your podcast right if if i get to use this at some point uh so well let's get straight into it the the theme of this webinar is prescriptive versus performance-based regulation. Uh, we've just seen conveniently on the news that uh, a revision to approve document B has come out. And it's, I guess, the, the key thing from it has been that, or the most publicized thing has been the uh, reduction in height to 11 meters where sprinklers are required on all new build. And that is clearly a very prescriptive requirement. There's no explanation of why, but there's that requirement. and uh, it is not exactly consistent to what the uh, discussion, the, the arguments of the government of saying that we agree with Dame Hackett's outcome-based approach. So I'm just wondering whether you agree with this 
uh, or not, and uh, if you have any opinions on it. Yeah, anybody want to take that on? No takers. I'll pick one. Tom. <laughs> oh no, I get pinged. Um, so, it's, it's, so in in a way, I'm torn about my my view on the change. So I think from a moral objective standpoint, I think it's really really good news that there's a, a you know a significant reduction from from 30 meters uh, down to 11. Um, my worries about it is that sometimes with an increase in active prevention or active fire precautions in buildings that kind of creates a bit of a subculture of therefore I don't need to worry too much about other stuff. Um, I could see passive fire protection starting to take a little bit of a downward trend perhaps in terms of um, developers and end users kind of using sprinklers as a, you know, a panacea for safety. Um, but I think that have we seen the, the fires that justify it? I'm not 100% convinced yet, but is it, you know, is it a positive thing that that's now tabled as a, um, obviously it's not a requirement as we talked about earlier, it's a, you know, it's stipulated within ADB, it's not a building regulation requirement, so you can still prove or at least attempt to prove a way out of it, which is what some people would, would seek to do, I suppose. Um, but I mean, I, look, at the end of the day, putting sprinklers into residential buildings is never going to be a bad thing, really, is it? I mean, I, I don't think any of us would really bang our hands on the desk and say it should be 18. I, I think 11 metres, you know, why not everywhere? I suppose you could take that argument like the Welsh have done. Um, but, you know, we're, we're now what? We're 11. Scotland's sitting at 18, I think. So Scotland will probably review their requirement. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm. Look, I'm I'm against prescription generally because I think that makes makes people take their eye off the ball. But I think 11 metres in height for sprinklers is a perfectly reasonable and sensible approach for the government to take at this point in time with, you know, public perception, um, Grenfell Tower hanging over, and the sorts of things that our, our industry are uncovering in in you know legacy um, buildings from 60s and 70s. Yeah, that's my sort of my view on it. I'd only have one small point of that. It's the practicality. I mean, I, I agree with everything Tom said there, but you know, you, you look at the the volume of work that's going to to bring around. You can always see about taking things one chunk at a time. And I'm not saying it's about a higher priority above a certain height. And I'm not going to start down that path. But the more you restrict it to sort of get it right, get that done, then move on and expand and expand. I've always been a fan of that, where you actually really focus on on one area, get it finished, get it sorted, and then expand it from there onwards. So uh, my only question is, you know, is it achievable to go to 11 meters with all the amount of work that needs to be done to, to get to that? That would be my only comment to that. You know, when you mentioned about the amount of work, is it in terms of having the, uh, the, the capacity of competent installers to be able to fulfill that demand? Exactly right. It is exactly that. It's purely a practical side. It's the same as we were discussing about um, on one of the meetings the other week, and they blend into one, so please excuse me. And they're talking about checking every single fire door from the inside about yeah. sort of routine maintenance. Absolutely impractical to do that. You know, the, the time and the expertise to do that, the time and effort trying to get people to open their door 
it's it just sometimes you got to take a step back and say, yeah, I, I get the sentiment. I see what you're trying to achieve, but is it achievable in, in a reasonable time scale? Or is everybody going to put their heads on their hands and thinking, we can't cope with this. It's like saying every single building has to now come under this scope and get on with it. It will just be a flood. And we don't have the amount of competent people around to achieve it. So to me, the narrower the band, um, I think for practicality purpose, that being said, it'd be wonderful if overnight it was all fixed in one go. Yeah. I think the other thing just to take to bear in mind is that the word use of the word sprinkler, given that this is this event is sponsored by Plumis, um, the, uh, the advice in, in Scotland takes into account that there are alternative um, suppression systems and the danger is that, yeah. that the word sprinkler is used, that everybody thinks that it has to come in dollops of 60 litres of water a minute. And I think ultimately, um, automatic water, aut automatic suppressors aren't quite as easy to say. I've just demonstrated as sprinklers, but I think we have to try and find a way of of making sure that that is the issue and not it's not just pipe forms of water. I think it's the Hoover name though, Jan. You know, it's um, you say about yes. go and get the Hoover. It's a brand name, but we've got to got used to using that to cover all types of vacuum cleaner. And it's the same sort of thing. I think sprinklers is a is very much a generic term that's used for using water to put fire out. That, that's fine as long as the as long as the building regulations don't specify that it has to be a hoover and not a, a vacuum cleaner. And that's really the main issue that I think we have to uh, yep. be wary of. And that's where I think the the, the regulations then would follow the Dame Hackett recommendation that it would be that it isn't then that prescriptive actually actually specifying a particular type of standard i think that's exactly where tony suffers from from the equipment he works with you know you, you get these generic terms about extinguishing media and they don't come that broad they become very specific you, you, you are right um and i think that's um as an absence of market education um, and like you say, the, the generic term Hoover has applied to sprinklers for a long, long, long time. Absolutely nothing wrong with sprinklers. But I think as time moves on, it's whether or not um, the world uh, or perhaps even the UK has the desire to embrace uh, a little bit more innovation um, that's performance based. And when I say performance based, I think I refer to the fact that in the last webinar, um, technology always leads and standards follow. So, so irrespective of what you've got and how good it is, if it doesn't comply to a standard, people get very protective and very defensive about um, what risk there is and uh, what liabilities there are uh, if they dip their toe in the water and want to take uh, a chance on some new technology, which in performance terms could, could, could easily outperform any of the more established um, uh, if you like technology in certain applications uh, but it's about risk and it's about I think it's about market education and also about desire to want to change and to want to move on and to 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 adopt uh, new technology we seem we seem to be we, you know smartphones are something that are just thrust on us and and we've all gotten now so so that the that we've, we've now got that technology and we've all adapted so I think I think in terms of where we are as Firepro UK, 
um, it, it's, it's one of those things where as long as you can prove that the product is fit for purpose, has the right certification for the specific application, and is being installed by competent people that, that you can demonstrate their competence, then I, I really can't see why the market wouldn't want to embrace the innovation and the technology moving forward. Uh, do you agree, Will? I think, yeah, no, I fully agree. I think, it, in fact, it goes back to the whole the, the performance-based approach, right? As Tom is saying, if you specify just sprinklers, you forget about the passive side of things. If it's really, if if it does happen, which is what we hear, whether the 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 building safety regulator will be part of H, HSE, and they will expect you to tell you what uh, what have you done and prove that it's been reasonable to ensure the the life safety precautions in that building, then it will be more about this is a combination of active and passive measures that have uh, achieved the objective, right? And in fact. Is the objective of the building regulations, which is already performance-based. There's this lack of awareness. I think even listening to the Grenfell Inquiry uh, BBC podcast, the the how clear it is that the architects involved had no idea of how clear and simple and performance-based building regulations are. Right, the the, the five functional requirements. I'll ask, I'll ask the question. When you say that certain people don't have that level of knowledge or any idea, do you think that that's an absence of desire to move forward or just something where people are just so busy that are, uh, are just, 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 just their, their life is full of compliance in all parts? So is it more to do with market education or is it just an absence of desire thinking that fire safety is somebody else's problem? Well, I would say that this is the unintended perverse uh, incentive of, of prescriptive guidance, right? If you have something written telling you how to follow the rule, you, and if it's not very clear, very obvious to you what is the functional requirement you're trying to achieve, then you just follow that route. You might even misinterpret it, or you might even deviate slightly from it. And if you don't remember what the primary objective is in the first place, then, which is basically what Dame Hackett said, right? Is you're, you're just uh, uh, being lazy and this is where in fact you don't need the competence because you're not having as your own uh, work of whether you're meeting the functional requirement yeah so okay. the, the way I like to try to coin it is with um in, in that context is I, I call it unconscious incompetence and what that is is basically where you don't know that you're not competent to do something and you can use those two words in a grid of four and get four outcomes we have conscious competence, conscious incompetence, and then unconscious competence and unconscious incompetence. And I think that the Hackett report sort of alluded to the fact that people were consciously incompetent. I, they knew they weren't good enough to do it, but yet they just did it anyway. And the way I like to think is I, I don't believe the industry was that um, that knowledgeable about it. I think there was unconscious incompetence. So people didn't know what they were meant to know, and to, which sort of comes into your point Tony I think and how do you the, the only way that you can solve that problem is by raising awareness as to what people should know for them to be able to identify whether they're competent or not and I think you you have a situation from in buildings in particular from um, conceptual design all the way through the design phase into the build and into 
the as-built environment where there are so many individual markers of competence that are required to facilitate that building safety over the course of its life and to what extent does the is it i mean is it our industry's responsibility is it construction is it for, you know who is it that's responsible for that um to make sure that at every single one of those stages as the building moves along that the people who are doing what they're supposed to be doing know what they're meant to be doing, they're competent to deliver it and i suppose that sort of moves into the kind of how does the building safety regulator what's their role in this um and and how do, how does that get facilitated long term um and i think that's going to be a real struggle do you think that hackett's going to re resolve all of that i just think the pro so i'm not going to be one i'm not going to be pessimistic and say no it won't work but I don't think it's a catch-all solution that's going to happen quickly. That's for sure. And I think there, you know, and 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 Ian talked about just as simple as saying, by the way, in new builds, we're going to go from 30 meters where we want sprinklers. We're going to go down to 11, and the problems that started. You go back to when the fire safety order came in, and we had fire risk assessments required everywhere, and no such thing as a competent fire risk assessor. Right? We didn't have a competency criteria for what five years, something like that. Um, we didn't get the guidance for two. And, and you kind of think, well, the fire risk assessment is going to solve everyone's worries and make everyone happy and safe. And then the reality is it's probably only within the last five years, really, we've actually got an industry that's capable of delivering fire risk assessments. And we actually all kind of understand what competency is. So, so that's fire risk assessments, one document for every building that's occupied. Ian's point about sprinklers in the built environment between 11 and 30 metres, which is a new area, really. Um, and how do we deliver that? And then you say, I want everybody in the whole industry to understand their responsibilities around fire safety. And I need that to happen today. We all know that that is just not going to happen. Like that, that is a big process. Um, and, and as an organisation, we're working to deliver that. And we've been working on that for 18 months you know, in, in earnest in preparation for what the future might hold. You know, So, so we're, we're in that space where we can make it happen the day, the day it starts. And are, are other organisations thinking like that? Or are they waiting for stuff to happen? Um, and Dame Judith Hackett's adamant that the industry should be doing it now. Well, the industry isn't capable of understanding what it needs to do yet. You know, well, so some organisations are ahead of the curve and others aren't. I think this goes back to desire. Um, is there the desire in the market to want to change? Um, <laughs> look at whether it's uh, insurance driven or uh, RP driven, uh, fire and rescue driven. I sometimes question, does the desire to actually move forward um, exist? Um, uh, and not from a, from a mandated point of view, because I think relying on the government, you know, I, I think one of the points that Ian raised was that, you know, we've almost like a revolving door of fire ministers as far as the FIA are concerned. And every time we've got very, very close to one, um, within a short space of time, he's then moved on and gone into a different um, chamber of office. So the progress from um, uh, from mandating competency um, it, it is, I think, a long, long way away. Um, so it kind of falls on industry um, to do as much as they can. And, and, and I think the point I raised in a board meeting some time ago is that the FIA um, adopted third-party certification for fire alarm, uh, fire extinguisher, 
companies, servicing companies, etc., etc., design, installation, maintenance, and and the FIA was the first trade association to say to all of its members, you've got this amount of time to reach this level of competency. We didn't need to do that, but I'm glad we did do it because it kind of took a step upwards. Um, but now we've got a situation where we, I think, in my personal opinion, we need to go even further. And my um, expectation would be is that um, an engineer would turn up, irrespective of um, the, 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 the property, but if the guy was doing any work, any work at all, whether it was passive or active, he would turn up with a card. And that card, like a gas safe card, would, would actually say, I am competent in doing this work. And that's not just general work, that's the specific task that the guys turned up on site to do. And that mm. I, I, I kind of question, is that too utopian? Is that is that way, um, uh, is that gonna happen in our lifetime? Although we've got gas safe, and one of the ministers actually said a long time ago to me, that, and I just said, well, why are we not mandating competency certainly for fire systems engineers and he said well i said we've got it for gas and he said well gas kills fire alarms don't and i thought that's not that's not the right way forward you know it's true but it's just not the right way forward so so since that time this utopian dream of, of and we've certainly got it i mean the construction industry has got its act together with cscs cards and levels of competency for walking on a building site but once the structure's built and it goes into the hands of the end user, I kind of there's a, there's an immense gap that, that that exists in terms of what is required to maintain, irrespective of whether or not it's built properly, is is actually who they're going to get on site, what they're going to do, and how competent are they to do the work? Would you agree, Ian? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, well, I've had enough of these discussions with, with various ministers and stuff over the years. They won't mandate it. I, I mean, it's we'd love to dream about it, but their, their epic really is, is about pushing, reducing red tape in construction. So speed up, you know, the speed of delivering construction, take away all the red tape. And this comes into that bracket. And this is the reason they fall back on every single time. And you even get like, if you want that one in, you need to take two out type conversation with politicians yeah. who just trying to reduce the regulations, the rules. And if you really feel that's important, find me two I can get, I can get rid of. So I'm reducing red tape. So they're not they're not thinking it through. Um, I find it farcical. And I'll tell you something, most MPs that I speak to have no comprehension that any man can walk down a road and just drag him in, design your fire alarm system. Uh, or you lay out and do your risk assessment, the next guy can install it and the next bloke after him can maintain it for the next 10 years. I mean, it's shocking to say it when you say it like that, but absolutely anybody can roll up off the street and take care of a life safety system. I think it's appalling, but the government just keeps shielding itself from it and will not mandate it. And they keep, and, and Hackett Report puts it back on the industry. So you make a stance. Eventually, we put our shoulders back and take it on the chin. And exactly what Tony said about our membership as an example, and it's clearly working. We've got 900 members, all third-party certified. It's clearly working. So you're raising the bar on professionalism. And we're trying also, setting up as an AO, investing huge amounts of money to make sure people are qualified to do the job they say they're going to do. But the industry has to accept it. You need the big turnkey construction companies to insist upon it as part of their tender process. We want people to be qualified. This is the stipulation. 
and all of a sudden it self-generates and then you'll only get Mickey Mouse business for Mickey Mouse companies. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And I, so from, from my perspective as a construction firm who, well, we're a global construction firm building some of the biggest commercial projects and residential um, urban regen projects on the planet. And it's a requirement to work with us that you're third party certificated by UCAS accredited scheme to do any passive fire protection work. You have to be um, a FIA member or a BAFE member if you're doing the um, uh, active fire precautions, LPS or whatever, whatever scheme it might be. And if you know if you deviate from that, then there might be an opportunity for us to work with them to to get them through that process because I think there's benefit in doing that from 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 my perspective and from an in industry perspective that you know there's a large firm to work with smaller firms to facilitate them going through that process because what the the, the other risk is that we mandate third party certification as a, as a large organization and as a result of that you eat up all the competency and as a result of that no one else gets any if that makes sense so there, there has to be a um, an opportunity to kind of spread the love for want of a better word to make sure that smaller firms get access and, I, and I, I'd be interested to see how in time smaller firms can be supported through that but, but exactly as you say Ian unless the the client the responsible person unless they are the people that are mandating it the government aren't going to do that for us it's just not going to happen and the, the 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 panacea of having a card like you know as we, we heard with the uh, the anecdote around the gas engineer well you know gas was killing a lot of people for a very long time you know with carbon monoxide and gas leaks and all that sort of stuff and they said, well, how do we solve that because any man and his dog can go and do a, a gas installation well we solved that problem i mean there are still people who operate without cards of course i mean that, that still happens um how do we do that in the fire industry and and, and you know to be a little bit pessimistic the fire industry aren't killing enough people tony for the government to mandate it that, that's the problem you know that's the reality um uh, that it's a problem but it, it's a fact and we you know probably most people on the webinar and most of us would agree that you know actually is the is the fire industry responsible for as much as as it thinks it is or even more who who knows but competency is massive for us you know as a firm and as an industry and we have to all embrace it and if we don't no one's going to do it for us there's a couple of things, Tom, 100% with you all the way on that. Statute defence, I wrote down here, uh, and it's yeah. something we've been working with with the Fire Sector Federation um, to look at statute defence. Now, if you are aware that third-party certification raises your chances of delivering a, a, a proper fire safety system in all its guises, yeah. then what better defence have you got in court if something goes wrong? You turn around and say, all of my suppliers are third-party certified. Every person on my site have a, has a level three qualification, but in their specific field, tick, 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 tell me what else I was meant to do. Now, that's yeah. a pretty good defense, you know. So, therefore, yeah. you, you're trying to make sure that education goes out there saying, you need to look after yourselves here, guys. You know, there, there'll be witch hunts on every time there's an issue. I said, but one, what better way than your statute defense is actually have a tick off list? And this is what the Competency Steering Group was doing about what looks good. And then they're saying, okay, what looks good for companies? What looks good for individuals? And there are a number of organizations that give good qualifications. Um, there's a number of uh, organizations, you mentioned a few with LPS, with BAFE, um, doing third-party surveys of companies. Once you start to align all those and, and sort of fill in the boxes, you've got a pretty good solution. 
And the other very quick point is, uh, again, how do you bring people up? We made decision several years ago, and we have a thing called route to certification. And we have one dedicated, by a very skilled guy in quality assurance. So we bring smaller companies on board. We say, you need to be third party certified. And it's a frightening aspect for smaller companies. So we, okay, we've got a process. And what we'll do, we'll give you our guy, he'll come to you, he'll describe the whole process, and you can join the FA as an interim for one year, and you've got one year to achieve your, say, ISO 9001 or your BAFE performance or, or whatever. And that guy will go around and he sees about 50 to 60 small companies bringing their level of professionals up to have third-party certification. And that scheme is, is fantastic to, to work across the board. Well, I took my firm through that process when I was, when I was working at Frankamy and we... Um, you know, we went through that process and by you could join the FIA with kind of the you've got a year to get, you know, BAFE SB205 or whatever, but it's from a risk assessment perspective. Yeah. Um, we then sat on the Fire Risk Assessment Council and, you know, and that's that becomes a beneficial thing. You start to understand what the FIA are doing, um, you know, as an organisation. And, you know, I'd say to anybody to, to engage with, um, with the FIA in that capacity. Um, because it makes the process easy. And was it daunting? Yeah, it was daunting. Did it take long? No. Was it? Was it? Because if you're a competent organisation, generally, you're, there's not many boxes you need to tick outside of that space. You know, yeah. people talk about you know your ability to send out a fee proposal on time. You know, raise debts, invoices, and how you store your documentation. I mean, that's probably the stuff that causes the most problems to people who work in the fire industry, anyway, right? Um, the kind of the business bit. Um, but, you know, if you're good at what you do and you've got you, you've used the right people and they've got competency or they're on the IFE register or that sort of thing, or, you know, in the fire risk assessment world, then to become a third party certificated organisation, it's not a great deal of money. I mean, it's, you know, and, and the sort of stuff you've got to think about is stuff you should be thinking about anyway. So it's not new hoops. Um, it's, you know, that are set on fire or anything like that that you've got to jump through. It's a relatively sensible process. And it gives people like me, the client, a great deal of comfort that the that the organisations we're engaging to do work that we're hanging our, um, you know, our organisational reputation on, you know, that those people are competent. It gives us a great deal of assurance. And, and that's the way that's the way you sell it to, to big construction firms. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's say it's um, it's it's basically a bit of due diligence, effectively. You know, there's no way a large construction company can check every single one. They look for their memberships of various organisations and know what those criteria are. There's a degree of due diligence being done there. Yeah. Okay. Can I ask uh, um, a question which is related to that? Uh, you, you've probably touched on it, but it is a question from what we had from our last webinar. So I think it's and it'll take us into other other areas. Uh, we have the question that if we move away from prescriptive fire risk assessments, uh, they'll become more difficult. However, uh, if a fire risk assessment should be looking at the risk of harm, uh, and does it mean that they should also be more involved and therefore uh, outcome slash performance based? That, that comes down to competence, simple enough to me. I mean, it's um, if <laughs> you, you can download a risk assessment form off the internet, you know that if you if it's that prescriptive you just go through a tick box but you're not opening your eyes you're just looking what that form tells you to do 
And absolutely human beings change from whatever you think is inverted commas normal. You can go into a square block office block and then go back in about three weeks later and, and it's devastatingly different in what they've done with fire loads and how they operate things and do things. And you just need, need to have something. So that's one of the problems with prescriptive. You've gone around and done a tick box and you've walked away, give it to the client saying, you're safe. And they'll not look at anything else. So having somebody with experience, which you cannot replace, uh, as much as you train people, you're still going to have behind that experience as well because you get to see the sorts of things. I'm not one of them. I mean, I go in and miss things. There's no doubt about that, uh, having even been in the industry 30 years. But somebody who's specifically looking for what they've seen before, they've heard of before through exchanging ideas, being taught uh, as you go through, they're looking out for little things that I wouldn't possibly look at. Who's to know? like five years ago about cladding, you know, would would you go to that almost first thing? Us, I'm sure as hell I would now, that's for sure. You look at it straight away and thinking, whoa, I'm, I'm staying away from this. I've got no idea what that is. We would not have done that five years ago. So prescriptive, I get, but, you know, you need to have the knowledge. What what I would say about the external wall thing is that the fire safety bill that's currently going, which just had its second reading, it talks, it's now added specifically external walls. And that's because there was a perception and, and I actually think that the perception was correct that external walls weren't included within the scope of the fire safety order. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody that was doing fire risk assessments wasn't considering the external walls generally, because the, the other argument was that in the, the purpose-built blocks of flats guidance, that it, there was actually a paragraph on external wall systems and it actually talks about rain screen cladding. And that was before Grenfell Tower happened. So in the guidance, it did talk about, I mean, it was only like three or four lines, literally a paragraph, um, but it was being, you know, talked about. But I think that to, to take the, the question and just look at it on the, the flip side, talking about prescription and performance base, because obviously it, Ian's answered it in terms of a prescriptive risk assessment. And just to answer, just in case the, the, the context of the question was more about pre regulation prescription, I think the issue that we've got is that, and, and this isn't a criticism of fire risk assessors, but under, a competent fire risk assessor should be able to identify how the building was designed when it was built, it's, it, which is why the question is, when was the building built? Because, you know, in reality, fire doesn't care. But the point is, it's about trying to identify what snapshot in time the building was designed and to what extent the fire precautions were installed and why for you to understand the benchmark of where that building was originally built. The whole point of your role as a risk assessor is to take that benchmark and identify where that building is and then look at where the benchmark is today and risk assess the difference that and that's the critical point so if you if you think about risk assessors will generally and this isn't all risk assessors will generally take approved document b and risk assess against that guidance and bring the building up to approved document b that's generally what a risk assessor will do and they may be competent they might not be the best risk assessor in the universe but generally that is how 90 percent of fire risk assessments are done take adb and see where the building is on that spectrum the reality is in new builds double nine double nine isn't adb triple nine one isn't adb and a full fire engineering approach under seven nine seven four most certainly isn't adb and is definitely not double nine double nine so buildings are being built that don't look anything like approved document B. And as a risk assessor, if you go into a new building and apply approved document B and then take that action plan to the person who's running the building and say, do this, you're either going to look very, very silly 
or you're going to make someone spend an awful lot of money on stuff they don't need to spend on because their building has been built in a different way. Um, and all of that is because you're, those three guidance, those three routes to designing a building, i.e. use ADB, use double nine, double nine or triple nine one or use full fire engineering seven nine seven four. The reason you get options is because the regulations in the UK are performance based. So the building regulations are performance based. ADB is the easiest route to get there and the Secretary of State approves that design if you use the guide appropriately. 9999 and 9991 are British standard documents that talk about how you can kind of make your travel distances a little bit longer if you add a bit more, you know, fire precautions here or add a bit more active fire precautions or, or, or whatever. And then 7974 is when you basically take those two books, throw them in a shredder and start designing it on a computer and proving that smoke and fire will spread in a certain way through computational fluid dynamics. That's how you get exciting buildings. That's how the shards was created. The shard doesn't meet ADB, right? It was never going to. Railway stations don't meet approved document B. They're never going to. Um, and I think that's really important that risk assessors understand that and the built environment generally understand that. Um, there's only one, I would say there's only one prescriptive requirement in fire safety in the UK. And most people think there are hundreds. And I think there is one. And that happened at the back end um, when we had the building reg amendment in that you can only use A2S1D0 or A1 materials in your wall system. That is the only prescriptive requirement that is written in building regulations that covers a fire safety element. Everything else is written in a book for you to prove or not prove to a building control officer that your design meets the fundamental requirements of the building regulations, which is performance based. One prescriptive requirement, that's it. There aren't thousands of them. 11 meters plus isn't prescriptive. That's written in ADB. It doesn't say that in building regulations. That's just, you've got to prove now that you're, you're going to do that or better or do it or achieve it in a different way. That's what the building regs are for. And I think fire risk assessors are in the main don't necessarily get that. And it's really important. I think that's a very good point, Tom, that most, most of those that are expected to be competent are not aware that these are not prescriptive requirements. Right? They're, they're, they're not incompetence, yeah. William. That's what it is. They're not they're not rubbish. They just don't know that thing. They're unconsciously incompetent about that little bit of detail. And I've spent my whole life looking at risk assessments that say your building doesn't do this. And it says in ADB, you must. You say the building's been designed to double nine, double nine. I'm not required to do that at all. What are you talking about? And that happens every day. My experience, which I'm sure Tony will will feel the same, is that when you're innovating, you're looking at the the outcomes and saying, "Oh, we're doing the same thing, just in a different way of doing yeah. it." Yeah. And and we're shocked of how the response tends to be. But if it's not written in ADB, then you can't do it. And it's like, geez, yeah, exactly. that's not what it's for, you know. So you just see that very clearly. And in the end, it's a lot of what we spend our time doing is just explaining the differences between regulation, ADB, standards, and innovation, right? And how they interact between them, right? Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think the word desire goes in there as well, because you know all the points that Tom made are really valid. Uh, and it's always, you know, some of the debates I've had over certain British standards, um, and I've had to spell out to say, look, this is a recommendation. This is not. This is not a uh, a mandated requirement. Yeah, and you mm -hmm. cannot comply to every single paragraph within the British standard. And the nice thing is about every time it's evolved, and every time the standards do evolve, 
there, be, there comes a little bit more flexibility in terms of what can be done so that everybody understands exactly what Tom yeah. was just saying, that, that it's not bending the rules and it's not breaking the rules. As long as all the stakeholders know exactly how um, the mitigating measures uh, work and that they're performance-based, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, and, and you can you, you can achieve a lot, and you can achieve a lot um, certainly with the regulatory reform order, which I think, in all honesty, that was the the principle of why it was introduced in the first place. Apart from taking away the prescriptive advice from fire and rescue services, which, which, in all honesty, was was with good intent, but I think it, there was a lot of unfairness in that because every end user I used to speak to would tell me that uh, different fire officers, um, two different people, visited the same building. Uh, their interpretation of what was required um, was completely different. So therefore, they got mixed messages. Um, and, I, and I think, and I think, going back to where I started about the word desire. So all of the words that you use, William, are, are correct. But that desire to want to understand um, how you can apply the rules and the regulations, um, and, and, and maybe that doesn't exist. Uh, as well as it could within building control offices, because um, you, you, you always you've had some projects with building control officers where um, they've never seen the Fire Pro product before, uh, and all of a sudden they run for the hills. Um, whereas others have just said, "Well, has it got? Can you can you give me some certification evidence? And can you do this? And can you do that?" But it goes back down to um, different interpretations. Um, but I, I still go. I still keep going back to this word desire. Uh, and does everybody within the industry have the desire to want to uh, move it up? Because, like we said earlier, the government are not going to do it. Um, and, and as Tom said, you know, gas did kill fire alarms and uh, fire suppression systems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, that hasn't that hasn't moved on in any in any way in terms of mandating. But I, I still maintain that. Uh, there, there is an attitude sort of, um, and I'm not tarring the, the entire UK with the same brush, but there is an attitude in certain circles, uh, certainly with certain end users that I've come into uh, contact with over, uh, I don't know, 30 odd years of being in the fire industry, that fire safety is somebody else's problem, you know, uh, uh, and that's it. And as long as I've got a piece of paper, I, I, I'm, you know, my 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 backside is uh, covered. And I have a piece of paper. That's somebody else's problem. So I, I still harp on about the word desire, um, uh, and that's universal desire amongst all stakeholders. So do, do you see that this is what the idea of this new building uh, safety regulator tries to do, which is instead of doing the checkbox exercise and trying to follow prescriptive guidance that is in fact doing the other way around just pointing the figure you at, at the the specifier at the responsible person and saying are you sure that you're doing the right work whether it is whether it is a building that was designed completely different to adb or not is that i guess that's the objective whether it will succeed at that is a different question, but at least it's a better objective than what we've had in the past. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but I think that also then goes back into the competence loop that we spoke about so that the RP understands that the people that he's employing, a bit like what Ian said earlier, the RP has got the assurance that there is competency there. It's um, 
It's recognised. It's not somebody sat in a CPD session for three hours on how to make a firewall, uh, fire stopping and all that kind of stuff. It is recognisable um, competency accreditation. So in principle, as far as the bits in the jigsaw are concerned, that could be a good move, but then it has to be backed up with um, uh, competency schemes that are recognised um, by the building regulator um, so that at the end of the day, everybody within the stakeholder circle, whether that's the occupants, the fire brigade, uh, the end users, the RPs, the building regulators, they all have the reassurance that the thing's been done as best as it possibly could have been done at the time by the right people with the right competence. Okay, well, I think I'd just like to, to go to a slightly different direction in that these were questions that were asked from the last uh, webinar, uh, and I won't go on through each one of them in detail, but I'll give you an example. So I think they're all generally on the, on the same theme of how much are emergency uh, or, or life safety systems designed for the average person as opposed to the, you know, the long tail uh, uh, occupant, like the more vulnerable or with disabilities, and uh, whether there is even uh, the, uh, the, what the role for innovation is or what the role of outcomes-based uh, approach is to, to address these things. So some of the examples given was uh, refuge areas where it's difficult to have communication where, when alarms are sounding, uh, uh, fire doors with door closers and elderly tenants not being able to move heavy, heavy doors, spring-loaded, uh, or even their, their need to escape a flat if they can't open the door, and the expectation that they have to escape, um, and uh, even the the use of IoT so that alarm detection systems or an, an alarm systems have their dust levels being monitored remotely, for example. So uh, this is just the examples of how of of, of the types of devices that uh, attendees have been asking. But just in terms of prescriptive versus outcome based. And innovation. How do you see these for these examples? How could it? How can they work together? How can you achieve your objective? I think one of the things that comes along is about innovation. It's you know some of the risks or some of the unknown problems just aren't there um, originally, and as they come along, you you solve them one by one. Um, and also on the other side, the technology. I think I think Tony may mention technology sort of leads standards and approvals. So you can come up with a great wheeze. And the Internet of Things really is about technology. How do you how do you then embrace that technology to bring it into your fire system to make it more useful? I mean, every device really in the future will be just sensors and and the the dynamic use of, of that data to um, drive it towards false alarm reduction. I mean, let's just talk about, I mean, it's such a broad subject here. But let's just talk about detection as an example. Anybody can detect fire. That really is quite simple. And even on, um, I go back to my days, video smoke detection. Anybody can do that because it's a motion detection. And that you can get free with any DVR through the post now. It's not a complex algorithm that, that defines motion on a camera. It's a pixel change, a contrast change on a pixel. That's all it is. Um, but how you 
work on false line rejection is a true art of that and, and technology getting better and better uh, we used to go to the old stage of having like an and so two smoke detectors we do x you know like extinguishing systems in the old days you'd have to have a smoke and a heat goes off then it will trigger stage one etc uh, etc et but you've become more and more complex in the way you use data and information so you find multi-sensors now as an example the most basic sense before was an and or an or you select then they got into a situation where the sensitivity of the smoke increases as heat increases as a delta on time so you're increasing sensitivity knowing there's a heat rise then you get to algorithms of fully understanding of many senses like carbon monoxide uh, different types of smoke different types of heat generation whether it's plateaued or it's increasing and you build all these things and the whole purpose of that is not to be more accurate in detecting it's to be more accurate in false alarm rejection and you, and you find that a lot of the internet of things about data and information bringing it all back you're just trying to bring the levels up so unbelievably broad subject i could bore you intensely for hours on that one but um i think making it useful making it repeatable is the issue um a lot of people come up with great innovations and great ideas they've just got to be uh, better uh, certainly equivalent or more than what's existing otherwise why bother um and they also must be repeatable checkable uh, measurable all devices nowadays are monitoring their performances uh, and again you go through very very basic i remember the old flame detectors and oil and gas you have a, a light coming out the window and back in again to make sure the window's not dirty very basic things nowadays they're intensely difficult uh, complex algorithm algorithms that actually work out performance of of the smoke detector when it's getting to its its drift compensation extremes uh, but it goes with all equipment, even fire doors. You know, I saw mention in your list earlier on about, you know, if somebody leaves a fire door open, well, the fridge has got one, hasn't it? My fridge has. If I leave the fridge door open for 30 seconds, it bleeps at me and says, oi, shut the door, you muppets, sort of thing. Now, there's no reason you can't put that into every fire door. It's, if, that, if it's that basic and technology and white goods, everything's designed about price efficiency because people yeah, exactly. will buy a fridge because it's five pound lighter so it's not about the cost um it's about monitoring it using the information all those different things so anything's achievable but whether it's it's got to all going to be monitored and and checked yeah. and the technology exists to do everything you know in the context of our industry it can be done we're, we're in that space now we're, we're not we're not struggling to do stuff. Any any problem you can imagine in the fire industry that we that we face or suffer with people wedging fire doors open, people not being able to hear when they're you know using the um, the, the the disabled refuge telephone because the fire alarm's active, all those sorts of things. You know door closers that are too strong for the elderly, which I think was a point you gave William. You know technology solved this stuff. You know you can you can get your your fire alarm to turn down in certain areas. You can zone out certain things. Um, you can there's free swing closers that you can utilize, which basically the self closer only operates when the fire alarm is in active mode, for example, um, which facilitates day to day operation for the elderly. Um, you, you know, fire alarms are so clever now that you can say if this smoke detector's activating. I don't want this free swing to go to, you know, to close mode. I want that one to stay open until this detector goes off. So, you know, Mrs. Miggins can get out of her flat. Um, if it's on fire with the free swing, um, you know, not operating. But 
it's all been done and it all exists. The reality is, if it's not a prescriptive requirement, you won't see it in buildings. And and generally, the reason you don't see it in buildings is because it's not killing people. That's how things work, unfortunately, in this country. You know, unless it's killing people, it isn't going to be a mandated requirement or even in ADB. Um, and it's up to, to people who are RPs, who are specifiers, who are designers to look at the problems and to come up with a solution um, to the problem. And technology exists to do that. And I think, to be fair, Jan probably remembers um, more than most the exact point. But in, in, in the RRO, there is a requirement on responsible people to, to stay current with modern technology. Or I, mean, I can't remember what the exact words are. I'm sad enough to have it on my desk. Um, Adapting to technical progress. Technical progress, yeah, one of the principles of prevention. There you go. So, so you kind of you can then argue legally, you are legally bound as a responsible person under the fire safety order to buy Tony's stuff, right? Um, not not saying that Tony, other uh, other uh, stuff is available. Other, other suitable vendors are available. Exactly, <laughs> but like Plumis's stuff, you know, Plumis have got a product that does something that is better than normal sprinklers. But it doesn't do what normal sprinklers do, therefore it doesn't have its own British standard, right? But from a technical kind of allowing technological progress, if if Plumis's system puts fires out better, quicker, cheaper, with less water, for example, I'm not endorsing your product, William, of course, but but the reality <laughs> is that to adapt to technical progress, you you've got to start looking at these products. Like you're almost at the point where you could argue you're legally bound to do that. To adapt to technical progress, you've got to, as a responsible person, monitor what the industry is doing, what innovation exists, and working out if there are better ways of doing what you are doing day to day, either more efficient, um, cheaper, better safety outcomes, you know, all of that good stuff. You're objectively required to do that by law under the fire safety order. To what extent you do that and to what extent the fire brigade would ever try and prosecute you for not doing that remains to be seen. But the fire safety order is on the side of innovators. And what's really important, I think, and we talked about incompetence and, and, and unknown incompetence, is that people don't necessarily know where the information is. And I think with the Fire Industry Association looking at, at doing stuff about innovation, there needs to be a place where somebody's specifying or as uh, me as a, a social housing manager needing to know where is their information I can find there needs to be a place where I can find that information because at the minute there's loads of clever stuff that exists that unless you happen to be reading LinkedIn every five minutes or reading the, all the magazines every five minutes you miss it so the question about the, the door closers um, that that technology has been around that comp as a company there's been a, a, there's been promoting that stuff for a couple of years now the fact that somebody doesn't know it's there means that they they haven't been able to look in the right place to find it um, yeah. There's a whole range of companies doing clever stuff that needs that there needs to be a place, the innovation, fire innovation website that has all that information in a place where people can make their own judgment about it and then comply with part yeah. three, article 10 of the RRO. Yeah, next is that we're about to launch imminently, um, end of this week, actually. So, I mean, the fire door stuff is intriguing. I mean, I, I know the company you're talking about almost certainly, but. You know, energy recovery things. I mean, I, I like seeing technology being useful, not just for the sake of technology. Uh, and I remember fire doors being held back with a magnet. Now, you had to power those at 24 volts, monitor from the power alarm and da, da, da. I saw one the other day that was actually a permanent magnet, and you release it by reversing, by spinning 
the magnet on top of it to neutralize the magnet. And what that does for you, you're not constantly powering that door. It's held by a magnet. But when a signal comes through, it neutralizes the magnet by turning a disc on top to make the polarities match. Therefore, power saving, think of the environmental. That's a great design. Even the fire doors, the big heavy ones, you know, you can regenerate the energy that when you do, when they do close, same as my electric car, you know, if I'm braking, it's charging the battery, which when I put my foot down, it goes again. Fire doors can be the same. So as you're closing them, they're charging a battery within, which gives it a boost to get it going again. So technology is useful for many, many reasons, but not just for the sake of it. Yeah. And all of that, and all of that ties into the issue about the individual living in that in a particular property, which means that when the person-centred risk assessment is done, the person doing the risk assessment needs to be able to go to somewhere and see what is what is available um, for that person to, to live safely in that property. Hmm. We hear that about rating the doors and and for, for the unknowing, you know, I mean, my, my wife will say, well, why don't you just put two hour fire doors in every flat? What, what's the 30 minutes for? Is it that much more expensive? And I went, have you got any comprehension how heavy that door will be and how yeah. little, you know, the, the equipment to move it in there? So the practicalities, the layman would just turn and say, well, put three, four hour fire doors. And why, why wouldn't you do that? You know, but yeah. you've got to find well, ways to solve those problems. But as Tom quite rightly said, you know, all of these problems are solvable. But the issue is not ultimately just finished at my door. Well, it isn't about the door itself. It's about the door closer. And there's no point putting doors with door closers in individual properties because people then prop them open, which is why it's no longer a requirement. Yeah. So I think the next the next phase of um, innovation is going to come with sort of the, I hate calling it the green agenda, but we all know what we're talking about when we talk about the green agenda. And it's about how will technology provide economy in terms of things like power usage or water usage i mean this is exactly what we're talking about um you know how, how do you put a fire out with less water in the context of suppression that i think that's a, a, a reasonable question how do i provide emergency lighting in stair cores all the time without using electricity you know how does photoluminescence pay pay, pay part to that um how do like ian said how do we keep a door open without using electricity to do that using magnetism and that sort of stuff um you know how will facades be more energy efficient still providing the the, the requirements around um you know performance from a fire perspective but generate heating or generating you know lighting you know that sort of stuff i mean there's a that's where technology i think is going to go um, and I think that's the kind of the, the next phase. That's where technology maybe doesn't exist yet to facilitate all of that. Um, but I think that's going to be the next big step is putting, you know, putting less water on fires and putting them out more efficiently um, and, and that sort of thing. That, I think that's what's the next phase. And maybe Tom, the, the improvement of, of fire safety might be that if you can get fire safety to do that, I, systems to do that, uh role as well then you're also ensuring that they're being maintained yeah so because you're using it every yeah. time so yeah exactly so, i mean it, it even goes to things like fire extinguishers because if you get you know and we all know which one it is um but you know fire extinguishers that don't require a maintenance check by a guy driving or girl driving around in a van all day long replacing bits and pieces on a regular maintenance cycle that 
the unseen benefit of that product is the fact I'm actually re reducing emissions on vans and all that kind of stuff. Um, that becomes the unseen thing that I think responsible people and organisations more generally will become more acutely aware of the green credential of the products they are buying as people become more kind of morally and ethically aligned with the green agenda. I think that's going to be a big thing as well. My, my last role was the MD at Elmdean and um, uh, we worked in, on our fire alarm power supplies, EM54 part, I can't remember the, the number now, it's five years ago. But all the switch mode technologies now and the whole drive of all the designs we're doing is about economics. Um, and it, it is a desire by people. And again, is there a desire to spend a little bit more for it or not? This is what comes down to where the, the things are. So I, I, I totally agree. I mean, um, economical solutions, if it does the same job or better, then you really should be pushed towards having a better environmental solution. And one very, very quick one, and I, I know you're conscious of time, William. Um, we just did a CPD um, just before lockdown in, in Hampton, and then we did one online. Both had over 100 people on the CPD. Went through a process, got all my guys to calculate how much money it saves. And it cost the company X amount of money. And if you look at a website, I mean, please have a look at it. It's not meant to be anything else apart from comparison. It shows you that the caption area when you're driving in is within, say, 30 miles. Then you do a CPD that is online, and we've got people in, in overseas, in the islands in Scotland. But we worked out for those people to come in to Hampton to, to attend that course for a day, it cost thousands of pounds of fuel, people's time in traffic. But the environmental issue, there were tons of CO2 we calculated in the difference between one CPD to another. And we actually got all those calculations on. Have a, have a look. It's an interesting... Uh, statistics yeah. to look at about how things are changing and, and let's not go into COVID-19 and how things change this business and a new normal that's another discussion I'm sure but um, again you know thinking through with innovation comes in all areas it's about process it's not just products every time yeah okay well yet again we have uh, overrun our time because this has been a very good discussion so once again successful uh, if I can only ask if you have any uh, closing statement so that we can wrap this up, uh, given our attendees are still eager to continue listening, but we should just wrap this up. Uh, I'm sure you might have other things to do, like what are the plans or something. So, um, Tony, if you'd like to, anything to add, wrap it up. No, I think once again, it's been an interesting, um, interesting discussion. Um, and I, I, th I think that there's so much to cover, um, uh, whether or not we're talking about government, fire and rescue, technology, innovation. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks ever so much indeed for the opportunity to, uh, uh, to come on and uh, to participate. And um, just let you into a small secret, Tom. We don't use any water within this product. <laughs> Thanks very much. Is it a good yeah, detection system though if water gets in? <laughs> well, do you know what? It's certificated for marine use as well. Uh, I, less, I could go on, I could go on, but I won't. We've run out of time. Anyway, it's a different webinar. Ian, anything? I need to say, I'm going to do the plants now. I won't be using a sprinkler, I'll be using a misting system. Ha, 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 ha.
Yeah, personally, I, I've, I've actually learned some things today, I must be honest. So it's it's always good to uh, come out something benefiting yourself and some of the things that Jan and Tom come up with. I didn't learn anything from Tony, so I know he's stuck very well. But no, joking, Tony. It's about regulations, about compliance, about stipulations and, and uh, adapt to technical progress. I've, I've missed all these things. I'll scribble all these things down. So I've learned some good things today, personally. Great. Tom, anything to add? Uh, so all I would say is ADB Volume 1 and 2, the, the amendment happened yesterday. So if you go, go onto the Gov website and read that, there's a 12-page document that tells you what the high-level stuff is on reduction in height on sprinklers, the signage requirements for, for firefighters. Um, it's, it won't take you long to read and uh, you'll, be, you'll be more knowledgeable than everyone else that wasn't on this um, podcast uh to, to to know and if it is 2030 you missed the boat <laughs> <laughs> but yeah go and read it tell everyone in your business and they'll get all excited well guys well thank you very much this has been excellent i'm it looks like we're gonna have to do this again yeah so um we'll uh try this again as soon as we can and we might all be locked in our own homes uh, and empty offices by the time we do this. So thank you very much. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. you.